Alright, here we go with part two of Max, the carnival man. Here's the thing with Max Ivy. He's done so much stuff, and he's traveled so much, and he's lived such a unconventional lifestyle, you know, the traveling and the carnival, that it truly is hard to, to pin down and just nail down what he's all about. I mean, the man's all over the place. And so when I started talking to him, I had no, I, I had no clear idea where I was going to go with this. And we just, oh my gosh, we just were all over the place. And, you know, I could have talked, like I said earlier, I, I could have, you know, in episode one, I could have talked to this guy forever. I mean, he was just, just so full of stories. You know, and it was, and it, and it was a unique story because it was something I, you know, it was a world that I, I knew about but didn't know anything about. And that was, you know, being a carny, you know, working in the carnival. And it was just so interesting to hear about that lifestyle and it's a it's a life that you know with the pandemic you know who knows if that's coming back the way it was you know a lot of these places are maybe going under and it's kind of sad where can you take your girl out on for 20 bucks and uh walk around and not feel pressure to spend a lot of money carnival's a good place for that so anyway anyway here we go part two Across the nation, checking cities off his list, sharing stories of the road right here on his station. You are listening to the Kingfish. Yes, you've tuned in to the Kingfish Radio Network. Mm. Expand your mind on the open road with Kingfish right you know, here. One of the most impressive things about uh, about Disney, for example, is they have the they have the Imagineering team, and that team, uh, you know, there's several there's several thousand people on that team among their various parts, and they check everything every day. You know they. If it's if it's in their park, it has a schedule for every piece, for every piece that's on a particular ride or attraction. You know, they know when, they know approximately how long it can go between, even as something as small as replacing a safety belt or a safety bar. You know, so they, and they're they're a very impressive organization. Including they have they have their own dive team because they want to make sure even the underwater stuff that people don't see is maintained. Oh, that's amazing. You know, um, my my cousin, who uh, she was on the cleanup crew at Disneyland. I consider Disneyland the real place, and I consider the other one the world, the fake place. Because, you know, I grew up in Southern California, and I've been going there forever, and, you know, since we were little kids. And I remember when you had to have the tickets, you know, A, B, C, D, yeah. E. And he, he was the big, you know, most ticket, kids today. He ticket rides. He ticket rides, yeah. yeah. Today, kids have no idea what that means. But uh, we used to go back in the day, they had union day and my stepfather was an air conditioning refrigeration unit, you know, uh, union and the place would be half empty and you just go straight to the front and you could ride everything. It was amazing. But my cousin who's, well, quite honestly, she's high all the time. She was part of the, uh, the cleanup crew 
you know, on the like in the small world and all around and their landscaping is just their crew is just amazing also but she did that and then my brother uh he worked at the disneyland hotel for the conventions he set up uh, helped set up the conventions unfortunately i have a sad story about that max or maybe it's a good story it depends on how you look at it he was uh sexually harassed Man. at the uh, disneyland hotel yeah he was on stage and uh, he bent over to hook up a microphone and uh florence henderson uh grabbed the top of his head and started rubbing it and said "Ooh, sexy bald man in front of five thousand people he uh he said he'd never turned so red in his life having mrs brady hit on him oh my goodness yeah he's uh you know she did it as a joke of course but you know it's uh, uh it was pretty funny and uh but he set up you know he did all that stuff but yeah, I have a I have a friend uh, Jennifer Whitaker who te- who talks to people and helps them get past um, childhood trauma, and she likes to say, the 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 when it comes to events like that, it doesn't matter how small a thing the person who did it thought it was. What matters is how does the person it happened to feel. And she says that the, one of the biggest problems she has is getting adults to realize that some of the things they've done didn't seem like a big deal were a big deal to the person they happened to and changed lives in a negative way. So, well, yeah, I can see that. Case, she uh, thought it was a joke and, and he was totally well, embarrassed. He, well, he was embarrassed on the stage, but I think he loved it afterwards because, you know, he's got this story now of Mrs. Brady hitting on him. Of course, she was like, you know, quite a bit older than he was at the time, but, you know, because he's quite a bit younger than me, but it's just kind of funny that that would happen. But, you know the like you said the disney organization is so strict and so uh you know so you know they got their routines down uh, you know, they disney recently, world uh hmm? go ahead you know they recently you know they recently changed one of their longest standing rules it was a rule instituted by Walt when the per, when the first park was opened they will now they will now allow, allow the sale of peanuts and gum in their parks Real, now they will now they will well no Think gum, i can it. understand why they wouldn't well the, nobody wants well, nobody wants to clean up the pump the peanut shells well i'm kind of surprised because i would think that it would have went the opposite way the gum i can understand because it's you know gum gets everywhere but with the peanuts and everybody having all these allergies i would almost think that they would not want to have peanuts well, this was in the 50s when the park was first opened. Back then, nobody had a peanut allergy, or if they did, it wasn't news. His, his, original like decision, his original decision was, though, that he did not want his help having to spend lots of time cleaning up peanut shells. Makes sense. but uh, And, of course, these days, it seems like everybody's got an allergy to something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody's got an allergy to something. I I recently got yelled at by on on a plane because you know when I fly as a blind person, they put me on the plane first and they take me off last. Well, I was on a plane recently and uh, my nephew my nephew bought me some uh, some packaged crackers to eat on the plane, and uh, he bought peanut butter instead of cheese. So I'm sitting there eating my peanut butter crackers, not thinking about it. And then, then the, the 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 flight attendant makes one of those generic announcements that you know they're you know they're really talking to you personally, and said, uh, "Please, people, remember that because of the fact some people have peanut or other food allergies." You know, I'm like, "Okay, so you got me," but at least they let me finish my crackers before they told me not to do it no more. <laughs> 
you know sometimes you just don't realize oh, what the last time i was on a plane when we went to florida and it was when that that um i think it was one of the samsung's phones you know the ones that used to catch on fire yeah you know the with the battery yeah. I, I turned on my phone and looked at the wi-fi and there was like two or three of those on and i and i i sold the the stewardess hey man you make an appointment to turn, tell these guys to turn this thing off I don't fly much and I don't want to fly with a phone that, and one had caught on fire on a plane that day. I said, can you tell them to turn their Wi-Fi off or to turn their phones off? Cause I, you know, I don't want to make it to where I'm going. And they're like, Oh, they didn't do anything. So I stood up in the plane and said, Hey, you know, who's the a-hole with this, uh, you know, S seven phone. Can you please turn it off? And, uh, cause I'll figure out who you are. And I said, I'm not very, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I will embarrass you. So could you please just turn the damn thing off? You know, because I, you know, I don't know, you know, I mean, if, if it's happened before, I don't need it to happen while I'm on my, going on my vacation. It's going to ruin my day if the plane blows up, you know, or catches yeah, on fire or have to land somewhere. I've been in a plane that, that uh, had a, a rough landing and I didn't like it. Uh, and it was no fun. Uh, C-130 in the army, the uh, hydraulics went out and we landed a little, well, we landed quite hard actually. And, uh. The trucks that were in the middle of the plane that we had with us, they were they were stretching the chains when we when we hit the ground, and hopefully I'll never experience that joy again. Those planes aren't meant to be comfortable when they land to begin with. I mean, there's they're meant to carry people long, long distances quickly. They're not meant for they're not meant for 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 passengers' comfort on takeoff or landing. Well, actually, actually, Max, I. Honestly, I can't tell you about the landing because I didn't land in them very often. <laughs> oh, that's right. Okay. Know. Yeah. All right. So you were yeah, you were they, leaving them. You were leaving them while they were still in flight. Then okay. Oh yeah, we get up about you know we get about three thousand feet up in the air and then they'd say okay get out of here. Yeah. And then uh-huh. uh, so I have I actually have more. Uh, oh, I I think I landed like by the time I was twenty, I had landed in an airplane maybe twice. And I had jumped out of like 30 or 40 of them. And the second time I was ever up in a plane, I had jumped out of it. So it was like, you know, but I didn't know what to expect because there's no windows on the side. And then you just go out the door and then you're out and you're like, oh, my God, what's going on here? You know, and then the second time you're scared because the first time you don't know what to expect. The second time you know what to expect. And it's 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 pretty cool it, until you hit the ground, of course. And then just before you hit the ground, there's like that. Oh, I'm going to hit the ground. I'm going to hit the ground. You know, that's always scary like I, that. I have a friend in, in Pennsylvania who every time I've been there has tried to get me to go skydiving with him. He's like, he's like, Max, you're a blind person. He said, you know, you're really going to appreciate the silence that happens just before you pull the chute. I'm like, I don't know, man, because I picture a lot of screaming involved rather than silence, but that's just me. Well, but in he, the army, he, there was a lot of screaming, Max. There was, there was a lot of screaming, okay. Um, yeah, well, see, because what it is is we did well, we didn't skydive. What it is is you have this static line, and it's a fifteen, I think it was fifteen and a half foot, and you hook it okay. up to this cable. And as you go out the door, you you step out, and then the the static line pulls your chute open. Well, you're rushing out of the plane on both sides, and so we literally could we would black out the sky. You couldn't see the sun. There was so many of us, and so we would be really close together. And then, like sometimes, like you'd be so close that you'd be bouncing up against somebody, and hey, get away from me! You know, get off my chute. Because sometimes guys would, you know, you'd be so close, you'd have to walk. Not very often, but like I never walked across anybody's chute, but I had a guy walk across my chute, 
and you got to be careful because you'll steal his air and then he'll steal your air. And then whoever, you know, somebody's going to end up not doing good, you know, at the okay. end. All right. But the well, thing if was, if, if you were trying to encourage me to jump, you, you definitely, you definitely pushed me back towards the other end of the spectrum. I like that. Oh, it's pretty safe, Max. I mean, yeah. I've never seen anybody get hurt other than like a twisted ankle. But the thing is with the the new shoots, the ones, the skydiver ones, they land and it's like, you know, real gentle. And the army, they want you to, hit, you, you hit the ground and you roll and you hit pretty hard, you know, because you got, you got all that gear. You got the M16, you got the backpack, you know, you got a mask, you, know, you got like a hundred pounds of gear. But uh, there is a lot of yelling because, you know, it, it, guys in their 20s and, you know, young guys are not very, uh, they're more very colorful in their language when they're up in the air like that. Yeah. And also the, um, uh, you know, when you land, if it's real windy, you know, they don't land, they don't jump too much when it's super windy, but yeah, it's very colorful, but it's not quiet. It's not quiet. And in fact, you'll yeah. hear a lot of wind noise. You know, the yeah. wind will, you can hear the wind going by you and you know, that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's quiet, but it is unique i would i would say go for it i'm not interested i'm still not interested somebody <laughs> write some, somebody write me a check so i can at least have a good reason for doing it though let's go there you know oh i think i was a blast now keep in mind i don't think i'd ever do it again because i'm in my 50s now you know so it's not something i'm ever going to do again i yeah. did it once and i got paid you for know, it but here's the, here's the rub yeah well my i did it in the army you know for years and I had uncles that did it when they were in. And then a few years ago, nobody ever said a word to me, you know, back when I did it. You know, oh, it's great. Yeah. You did it or whatever. The family. Then a couple of years back, my brother Arthur goes and does the skydive thing where they tie him off to somebody. And, and he does that. And then everybody on Facebook is like, oh, Arthur, you're so brave. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, he's tied off to somebody. And, and, he, and he's landing, you know, in this Cadillac style parachute. And you and you and you guys are oh he's so brave, and I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you people? I was I was I thought it was kind of funny because, you know, I did it oh, for three years as a job and yeah. nobody said a word. Well, you know that's that's kind of the way it is with us blind people. You know, there's a lot of things that we do every day that we don't think nothing of, but if the when the sighted people hear that you've done them, it's like a big deal. You know, so and. Thankfully, that's been that's been part of my brand where people are like, you know, if Max can do it, then what's my excuse? But there there is a lot of that among people who don't have a lot of experience around the blind where, you know, they see some of the stuff we do and they're totally amazed. But for the most part, on our side of it, it's just something we're doing because we wanted to do it. You know, you were you were sharing with me earlier about friends you have that either play or broadcast uh, uh, blind cricket and you know, uh, blind uh, soccer, I think, was the other sport you were talking about. So, you know, I mean, those are things that, you know, to the to the rest of the world, they're probably they probably look strange and they're probably really impressive. But, you know, it's just a bunch of it's just a bunch of kids wanting to play is all it is, you know, and with the skydiving for, you know, for people who do it on a regular basis as an instructor or in the military, it's no big thing to y'all. But when somebody who's never done it does it before and most of their community has never done it and most of their community is scared of doing it, they become a hero. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Marco, who does the Anated podcast, he uh, it's for uh, Android phones. He does the the one who introduced me to blind cricket. And, you know, my first thought was, 
you know, you know, how can you tell which color dress you're wearing when you're, when you're playing the game, you know, if you're blind, I didn't understand that. And, uh, you know, but those guys are pretty, it, it's, I've listened to a few of their games and it's, they're, they're not, uh, they're pretty, they can get pretty wild, you know, yeah. it's, but I never would have thought that you could do something like that. You know, I mean, not that I, but then again, I never really put much thought into it. Uh, my my favorite one that I've just discovered recently is apparently there's an entire league here in the U.S. of blind hockey. Oh, where they um, play in each Canada. Other. Oh, uh, uh, one of the guys in the group I was telling you about, uh, Blaine. He's a uh, uh, Blaine's a blind hockey player up in Canada, and uh, you know he's the real deal. He's got the whole the whole setup, and you know he's he's very involved in the in the hockey leagues. It's well, uh, it's quite interesting can, to listen to. Yeah, well, I can get on skates. I've been on skates before, but I'm not good at them. So if I ever do it, I want to play goalie. Oh, if I do it, uh, you know, within a very short period of time, my ankles will be crying at me and, and you know, explaining to me, oh, why, why did you do what you did to us? And you were going to hurt for a week. <laughs> you know, the first so, time you know, those I, days are. Yeah. yeah. And, you, but you know, we, uh, the, the first time, uh, when I was in New York in 2016, it was the first time I traveled by myself. Uh, and it was, you know, it was cross country in New York. One of the things I wanted to do was to go skating, go ice skating while I was there. The first day I got into New York, I slid off of a sidewalk and, and twisted my right ankle. But three days later, I was at Rockefeller Center making my one turn around their rink, uh, staying close to the rail so that if I fell on my ass, I'd have a, a better chance of getting back up again, being, being escorted by two skate guards to make sure that I didn't, didn't hurt any of the other patrons. But you know, it's 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 something what we can do if we decide that we have to. And I just decided I wasn't going back to Texas without ice skating. Oh, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, um, things like that, like especially Rockefeller Center. I mean, that's so iconic. Now, when you were in the carnival, was there any place? Did you guys have a territory, or did you just go wherever you got a booking? And I was thinking about that. You said that you when you did bookings, you went to like places and stores wherever they had a place you could set up does the does the business get a cut of that or do you, or is it the fact that they're you're bringing in people that's their cut well uh we generally stayed in texas during the spring and fall months and during the summer we would go wherever we thought we could get the most consecutive bookings where we could keep from losing our butt between the spring and the fall so uh, a few years we went up into Kansas and Nebraska. A few years we went to Alabama and Tennessee and Mississippi. And uh, one year we even went into South Carolina and North Carolina for a while. So just just trying different things during the summer. But generally the way it works is if you set up at an event, like a fair, a festival, a, a church bazaar, then whoever runs the event is going to get a percentage of whatever you take in on the midway. And then if you set up on a shopping center, it just depends. Some places you pay them a certain amount of money, just like you're renting it from them. And other places they will still occasionally still take a percentage of the gross. It just depends on the, on the size of the company that owns the shopping mall and what your, what, what, uh, what your reputation is as far as how you deal with people and how you pay people. So, for the longest time, there was a there was a store chain here in Houston called Fiesta, which primarily catered to catered to Hispanic customers, 
And we used to could go there and set up on a percentage of the gross instead of having to pay them to rent their shopping center. Well, that seems like that'd be the way to go. I mean, you're bringing people into the business too. So I would imagine that'd be a big plus for them. Yeah, especially if they have a parking lot that's bigger than their needs or if they have a grassy area where they're not going to park cars anyway. And then you can make the argument that we're going to bring people in and they're going to they're going to spend money they wouldn't have ordinarily spent shopping. Uh, and then sometimes during the winter, we would set up just two or three rides at a place. And you usually you would, you would sit really close to the entrance and it would be like a way of uh, getting people to come to the store more more days during the week than they usually did. So, you know, if most people usually shopped once or twice a week, they might have to be there every day because of the kids. And that week they might buy, might spend more on groceries than they usually did. Did you ever go to a place and go, oh, no, no, this is not going to work. What were we thinking? Um... I'm trying to think where it was like, this is not going to work. Um, a couple of times we, we set up on a flea market in Alabama once that just didn't look like it was going to work. Uh, we had some events where I was like, can we just get out of here alive? We had more of those than, than once where you, because when you, when you start setting up your equipment more often than not, it's like, you feel like something good is going to happen that week. You only start to worry about it after, you know, after you open the first day and if people don't start coming out, then, then you start thinking this isn't going to work. Or if you've been watching the weather and like the, uh, the weatherman saying that it's going to rain. So people are going to stay home, even though it doesn't look like to you, it's going to rain that, but the ones that always bothered me more was when we were set up places that weren't really great for our particular size carnival, or when we had to set up in bad neighborhoods and you're like, man, can we please just get out of here with the stuff we came in here with? And uh, we used to, we played an event in San Antonio, Texas, three or four years in a row called Take Pride in Eastside. And the event was actually run inside. They would set up a temporary fence all around the event area. And they would draw thousands of people and you would be inside this event with lots of people who had been drinking beer and who knows what else they had been drinking or inhaling. And really, I, the last year, that was one of those events when we played it, I would leave my game down and just volunteer in the office or in the food trailer that week because it just wasn't safe for me to run my own game at places like that. And the last year we were there, I asked the, I asked one of the police officers, I said, I said, how many of y'all are there here? And he told me, well, between sheriffs and police and Texas Rangers, there's about 50 of us. I said, and I asked him, I said, well, if something bad happens, is that, a, are there enough of you here? And he said, he said, mister, if, if something bad happens here, there ain't no such thing as enough of us. And so that was one of those, we, every time we did it, we made money. I mean, we, it was, a, it was a great event profit wise, but the whole time I was there, I was like, y'all let me know when it's Monday, will you? Y'all let me know when we're in the next town. Hey, Max, when yeah. you, um, when you set up for stuff, was there a, method to the madness other than the way the place was laid out i mean did you want a certain thing up front did you you know was there a formula did you have a formula for well, that? yeah well usually you started with your if you had a carousel you would start with your carousel your ticket box and your food trailer and then you would have the children's rides behind that the adult rides at the very back 
you'd want to line up the games so that they had to walk through the games to get to the adult rides and through the games to get back from the adult rides if they were going to go buy more tickets. And uh, usually the prize every time games would be near the front of the midway and the more difficult games or the games where somebody might have to just keep playing until the operator gave them a toy or, or a bear, those would be towards the back of the midway. And you always wanted the highest piece of equipment at the farthest point away from the from the entrance so that uh, every, everybody knew exactly how how where you know how far the midway extended you know because you wouldn't want them looking at you wouldn't want them coming to the front of the midway and not realizing that there's a whole bunch of other stuff the farther back they go so you know if you kind of like kind of like putting the milk in the back of the store exactly yeah yeah the milk is at the back of the store the cheese is at the back of the store the 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 meat is at the back of the store and that's the way it was with the big rides, the tilt world of the zipper, the paratrooper, those types of rides was always be at the very back, and you oh, would well, do that, your best. That makes sense because, yeah, that makes sense. Except, I got, I got to tell you one thing though, I got to correct you on one thing. I live in Wisconsin, so the cheese is in every aisle. There's cheese. You know, I, knew, it's, I, it's I knew somebody, I knew, I knew somebody once from Wisconsin who came to my house and found that we had processed cheese in our refrigerator instead of real cheese and they refused oh. to eat with us oh max oh oh my gosh <laughs> i can't believe you just oh that's horrible you know actually i went to a restaurant in the in here in wisconsin and they had processed cheese and it was and i was like you're surrounded by dairy farms why would you have processed cheese what, what i mean this, this stuff's like everywhere and, you know, it's like they make over 600 varieties of cheese here in Wisconsin, and you're going to have processed cheese on your buffet? Oh, give me a break. Just yeah, well, at least the, yeah, I'm surprised you didn't report them to the health department. Oh, I, yeah, how do you keep – I think you have to eat, like, at least 10 pounds of cheese over the year, otherwise they kick you out of the state. I mean, it is a state where you go to the state fair and they have huge blocks of cheese carved into figures. I mean – Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the, they do the big dairy thing and then they have the big cheese festivals and, you know, then they do the awards at the state fair and, you know, going to this, going to the state fair here is probably the closest they get to a carnival these days. And of course this year, the, the state fair was closed because of the, you know, the COVID. And I imagine we were talking earlier, a lot of the carnivals may be disappearing because of that. Yeah, so. because the, the carnival business is pretty much uh, there's a you know a lot of that equipment is operated on on credit on lease. So without money coming in, uh, some of the carnivals were, carnivals were eligible for and did take the PPP money, but that money has run out. And generally, those most shows make their ride payments for um, say March to October, and if they if they miss even a they have even a few bad weeks. Some of, some of those shows can have equipment that has to go back. So I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be quite a few shows that, you know, like other like other industries, like restaurants and like bars are going to close and never open again. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure where the cutoff is going to be. I mean, um, I know there are, oh, there are already a lot of, of fairs across the country that have to get by with inflatables and interactive attractions instead of actual rides. And I know there are a lot of counties that have already started buying their own rides over the years. So 
I don't know. I, it'll be it'll be sad, but I would imagine this time next year, unless the finance companies just decide that it's better to reach to it's better to to uh, to let people keep the equipment than it is to get it back and try to sell it to somebody else. I think a lot of the shows are going to go out of business this winter. And you know, you know, for me, for me personally, you know, you would think you know, Max has a website. He helps people sell equipment, but you know, I sell on commission, which means I, I get a percentage of the sale. And a lot of these people are not going to want to pay me a percentage of the sale when they're going out of business. And a lot of that equipment is going to go so cheap, it'll go very fast without them needing somebody like me to help them sell it. So I'll be very yeah, disappointed, man. very sad. 